We spent uh, the last few weeks looking at some controversies between uh, Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, and Rick did a trilogy uh, on the authority of Jesus and how we're either for it or we're against it. Um, and so we come to this place in, uh, in the text. It's, it's Tuesday uh, of Holy Week, uh, three days before Christ will be crucified. And so um, that kind of sets the groundwork a little bit. What's been happening is Jesus has spent pretty much the last day or so in the temple interacting with um, religious leaders. And what's going to happen in our context here in, in uh, Mark 13 is he's going to be coming out of the temple. And what he does a lot of times is this. is He does, he does public ministry where he's interacting with, with the public. His disciples are nearby. They're watching him, learning from him, uh, modeling uh, what he does. And then what he almost always does is he takes those disciples that were with him when he was ministering publicly and he takes them privately and he dives even deeper into spiritual truth. Okay, And so the context of what we're looking at tonight is the interaction of a private interaction between Jesus and his disciples. All right, um, and, and here's what I want to do with our text tonight. Um, if, you, if you're familiar, and many of you are, with um, the Bible, you know that there's an analogy in Scripture uh, that's used uh, a lot uh, to describe the Christian life. And that analogy oftentimes is athletics, more specifically a race. And uh, what we're dealing with in this passage really is a lot of end, like end time stuff, like what will happen in the end. So what I want to do is I want to I use this model of a race to kind of set a framework, to kind of set a structure to where we're headed and what we're going to be doing. Okay, and I want to give you seven um, imperatives for your spiritual race. Really seven things that are necessary for us to finish, but not just finish, but to finish well. Um, so, so seven imperatives, we'll get into that in just a second. Just so you know, uh, Mark 13 is known uh, by scholars, uh, theologians, as the Olivet Discourse. Um, it's considered the, it's the longest teaching discourse in the Gospel of Mark. Um, the reason why it's called the Olivet Discourse is because it happens on the Mount of Olives, uh, which is actually a mountain that's overlooking the temple, um, which is pretty key if you think about it. Uh, Jesus isn't, uh, I don't think that that's by chance, but he's teaching these disciples about the temple and what's going to happen in the end as they overlook the temple, okay? So um, let's, look, uh, let's look at verse, uh, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Okay, here's what they've come out of the temple and... Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know if like one of the disciples was like real ADD and they're like really on mission and they're talking about certain things. And he's like, "Hey, look at that!" You know, might be one of those types of things. Um, but he just draws Jesus's attention to the temple structure and just how like incredible it is. Like, look at this building. Isn't this amazing? This was kind of an experience that I had when uh, I was in India a number of years back, and we hung out at the Taj Mahal. Just an unbelievable. Uh, building structure that you're just, you're walking around and your jaw's on the floor. You have these like little booties on that go over your shoes so you don't mar up the floor at all, okay? So I think some of that like all happening as they look at this building. But let me just give you a little information about why would it be such a big deal. Um, the beauty and size of Herod's temple uh, was considered probably uh, to be greater than most of what's known as the seven wonders of the world, okay? Um, it covered one-sixth 
of the city of Jerusalem. That's how vast, that's how big this temple structure was. One of the stones that made up, you know, many of the stones that made up the, the temple structure would weigh around 570 tons. And what scholars would say was that the temple was so glorious and so beautiful in, in its gold and, and white stone figures that if the sun was shining, oftentimes you couldn't even look at the temple because it was so bright. Um, and so they're walking out and they're just like, look at this place. Like This is, this is unbelievable. And, and then Jesus is going to do something interesting here in the next verse. Verse 2. Uh, and Jesus said to them, and Jesus said to him, Do you see great buildings? There will not be left here one stone standing upon another that will not be thrown. Here's the first imperative for, for running your spiritual race. It's to see things properly or to see things eternally. Okay? Um, because here's, here's what's happening. Uh, this structure, is, as beautiful as it was externally, Probably what even had more value and more beauty was what internally it was. Now, not so much like aesthetically, like I'm sure it was beautiful inside, but, but more figuratively and symbolically for what the temple represented uh, in Old Testament worship. Okay, that the temple really was uh, the place where in Jerusalem, um, Jerusalem was like the mecca of the religious culture in that in that age, okay, in that area. And so many would come and travel from long distances to come to this place, to come to this place, to come to this temple to worship, to celebrate Passover and to, to celebrate really much of what they had learned in their, in their faith. Um, and so really symbolically what we have happening in this temple um, is this. If you're familiar with Old Testament, let me just give you a real quick uh, background, real, real quick history of the temple. The first temple that was constructed was built by, by Sol, King Solomon, or in the time of King Solomon, it was started under, under the reign of King David, and basically King David uh, thought up this idea to build this temple, and it didn't come to fruition until King Solomon's day. Um, then uh, a, long, a while after that, the Bab- under the Babylonian rule, the temple was destroyed, okay? and then a second temple uh, was thought, thought out under the rule uh, of the prophet Ezekiel, and was known as Zerubbabel's temple. That temple, under war and other persecutions, was badly damaged to the point of almost being destroyed. And what happened is about uh, 2019 B.C., before Christ shows up on the scene, um, Herod the Great decided, we're going we're gonna to rebuild this. But when he rebuilt it, here's what he did. He made it twice the size of the original temple of Solomon. And so where the temple structure lies on the east side of Jerusalem, this is actually the third temple that shows up in that same location. Okay, So there's so much history in this location as a means of, of worship. Okay, And if you think about even what the temple represented, what took place in the temple, uh, if, you know, if, if you know the Old Testament sacrificial system where they would come and they would shed the blood of a, a perfect spotless animal to be a means to atone for their sin, okay? But really what that was is it wasn't so much something that, that we're going to look at in a second that actually atoned for their sin, but, but what was it? It was something that foreshadowed what would come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Okay? So there's so much going on. So when, when Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed, you've got to wonder if the, if the disciples are like, again? <laughs> like, they're thinking back historically what has happened. Again? Okay? Um, but here's what I want to do. I want you to go to Hebrews because the question that, that we have to ask is why? Why would such a monumental um, place of worship be destroyed? Um, we've come to know historically that the temple was destroyed in AD 70 uh, by the Romans. But uh, I want to look at Hebrews because this is really uh, just monumental for what we know is, is our Christian faith to be. Um, Hebrews chapter 10. It says, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Okay, so here's what that's saying. That the law, everything we have in the Old Testament, really the Old Testament is one big arrow pointing to Jesus. Okay, so it's saying that the the law was just a shadow of the good that would come in the person and work of Jesus. Okay, it wasn't the true form. Um, Since that's true, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So because of the fact that it's pointing to Jesus, it's never going to actually atone for sin in a salvific way. Okay? Um, verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Okay, so it's like, well, if it really has that value, then why don't we continue to do it? Why don't we bring animals in here and slay them right here up front? Like, Well, because of, of, of what it intended and what the purpose was. Keep reading. Otherwise, um, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been uh, cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of, of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Jump down to verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. So you hear that? It's kind of repeated. This can never take away sin, that the Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant, was really fulfilled in the New Covenant in Christ. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So really what is happening is that everything in the, in the, in the sacrificial system that takes place in, this, in the temple is a foreshadow, an arrow pointing to the work of Jesus. Okay, um, Go back to Mark chapter 13. So what's the point? You know, we could, we could look at this even, even this day and age. The disciples, they place so much emphasis on this building structure on what it was intended to be and on what it represented. Okay? Much like maybe sometimes to a fault we've placed too much emphasis on a, on a church building rather than what really takes place uh, in here. And we place more emphasis on going and making sacrifices and fulfilling our religious duty rather than really what happens in allowing the Lord to transform our hearts. And so Jesus is coming along and he's saying to the disciples, you need to see things right. Yes, this is a glorious building, and yes, it has much to say historically about what's happened, but it's going to be destroyed. Okay? And that could translate into many other things about 
thinking about things eternally. But let's look at verse 3. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So really what's happening here is, as you can imagine, if, if we were to say, this building is going to be destroyed, well, what's your next question? When? And will there be any indication, and uh, how will we know? And um, So all these like timing issues, you would wonder, and probably they're like, you know, I want to be able to go there and worship one last time before it's actually destroyed. So they're asking all these questions. Okay, continue reading verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, and this is the second imperative, see that no one leads you astray. So he's saying, don't be led astray. So here's all this emphasis on this building structure, and Jesus is going to kind of divert from their question momentarily and then get back to it in a second. But he says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. Okay, here's what's happening. Um, In this context, in this culture, a lot of times what happens is Jesus is about ready to obviously die and then also be ascended to heaven. Um, And so he's preparing. There's there's a lot of pastoral remarks in this passage. He's preparing his disciples for what will take place when he's gone the mission that he will have for them, but also, what will the end look like? Okay? And so, here's what he's saying, that, that, that there's times when there's so much focus on the end that you miss, like, where you're at right here and right now. Okay, have you ever been there? Um, I, uh, speaking of a race, uh, I had the opportunity to run two weeks ago in the Chicago Marathon, and uh, just an incredible Incredible race, or 45,000 runners, um, and it's interesting as you think about think about a race. Um, if we would just if you would just go outside with a friend and just run, that's one thing, okay. But going outside with like 45,000 of your friends is a whole different story, okay? Because um, you don't have all this room to run nicely, and you know you follow the sidewalk. No, you have like people shoulder to shoulder, front to back, and you have people with bad form that are like elbowing you and. People are throwing clothes off and they're hitting you and throwing clothes down. You're stepping over stuff and there's water cups and banana peels and like there's just all kinds of, of, of obstacles. Um, so the tendency is for me to focus on the finish, which is you can't say is completely wrong um, because we could look even in our faith that, that focusing on the finish is part of it. But a lot of stuff that I read was saying, what makes up how you finish is what you do in the here and now. So don't focus on the time of what time will I have when I cross the finish line, but like, what am I doing here and now in this mile and then in this mile and then in this mile, which makes up what's going to happen. And Jesus is saying, don't be led astray. Look at, uh, in Colossians chapter 2, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Um, we live in a day and age where being led astray is, is huge. Um, the, uh, the challenges that, that I have as a parent are so much different than the challenges my parents had in raising me. Like, it's a whole different story, a whole different ballgame. And Paul writes here in Colossians, he's saying, people are going to try to deceive you. 
Let me give you an example. I was at Great Clips. Uh, I go to the I go to the high dollar, uh, you know, haircutting place. Uh, I was at Great Clips, and uh, I was talking to the lady that was cutting my hair, and she told me that she had seen this this episode on uh, oh, what's it called uh, National Geographic. She'd seen this episode on National Geographic about how Jesus was married um, and had a kid, and just all this nonsense. Which you guys have heard that you know that stuff before. Um, you know, it's not like the first time it's come up. And she was just talking about all this, and, and so we started talking about it. And, uh, and 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 she goes, she goes, you know why why I believe that? You know why I think that's true? She's like, it was just an amazing show. Like they just had me convinced. I was like, seriously? So all it takes is like some really cool videos and some. Uh, really cool music and some really cool transitions and like it's got to be true, right? Okay. Besides the fact that historically um, there's really not much grounds for that to be the case at all. Um, and so in an age when really uh, we're so susceptible to being led astray and that all it takes is momentarily to let our guard down and especially in, in, in younger generations to just let our guard down and not really care so much and lose focus about what's happening here and now to be led astray. And that's what Jesus was concerned with about the disciples. Uh, if you watch TV much, um, if you ever see TV preachers, not all of them are terrible, but a good majority of them are. Um, they cease to preach sin and uh, the reality of hell and everything is about a faith that revolves around you yourself and what it's going to do for you, okay, very self-centered, um, that's the world that we live in, and, and even then Jesus is telling them, be careful, do not be led astray, people are going to try to lead you astray, verse 7, but when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, this must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is the third uh, imperative. Don't be alarmed. Uh, he goes on to list a whole bunch of different things uh, that we could probably talk about, all the ones that have happened recently, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes. And really, if you think about it, even in the history of the world, when have these things not happened? You know what I'm saying? Like, if really, this is a big part of what, is, what has happened really from the beginning of time. Um, but he uses this analogy of birth pains, and this kind of uh, gave me a, an interesting illustration that I thought I'd share with you. Um, when, when Danielle's pregnant with uh, Mikhail, um, we, uh, yeah, you guys know, you go through all the classes, and you read all the books, and the like, you know, birth Bible is like what to expect when you're expecting, and that's like, you know, inspired by God and, and all this stuff. And so you read all this stuff and you talk to people and you get all the, all the gist of what's going to happen in, in leading up to uh, labor and then, and then all that. And so as the guy, I'm like, I've got to know what's going on. This is going to be interesting. And so, um, but all of it is really to say, here's what's going to happen. Here's what 95% of the time happens when a child is born. Okay? And it's all to just prepare you really to say, don't be alarmed. This is the way it's going to go down. It's the way it's gone down forever. <laughs> okay? Um, but on February 2nd, 2008, 
at 3 o'clock in the morning, Danielle woke me up. And uh, she's like, I think this is happening. And, and it was interesting because all this preparation and all this, all this stuff to not be alarmed, like, uh, you, can, you can ask her. Like, I started, like, freaking out. Like, I was just like, this is really it? Like, I started, like, pacing the room, and, like, I just got real nervous, and I was, like, I was, like, shaking, and we're looking for a bag, and, like, oh, are we done packing, and we got to get to the hospital, and who do we call? And, like, I just started, like, like, freaking out. Like, I was just, I was alarmed, even though everything we had done was to prepare for what was going to happen. Um, but Jesus comes along, uh, and he, he uses this example um, of, that there's going to be indications of what's going to happen. But when they happen, don't, don't be alarmed. Like know, that they're, know that they're actually going to happen. There's been so many speculations about when the end will come. Okay, go home and do a Google search. Or most of you could probably get on your phone right now and do a Google search. about and, and just type, when will Jesus return? And it's almost humorous, some of the stuff you'll come up with. Like all the people that thought Jesus was coming back and, you know, Y2K and like, all this stuff about uh, the speculations of Jesus' Jesus's return. And, uh, you know, I just wonder what they went through when it's like, you know, January 1, 2000. They're like, and then it didn't happen. And, um, but take a look, uh, or you, you don't have it in front of you, but in, in Mark, a little bit later on, a passage that, that we'll look at in a couple weeks, uh, Mark actually says that no one knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels, not even the Son of Man, but only the Father knows the hour. Um, And so, really what we also know is that we're living in the last days. Really since the time of the early church, since the time of Jesus, we've been living in the last days. Okay? Um, This passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to a young leader named Timothy. Uh, Listen to what he says. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You ever notice people that, like, see somebody do something that's like, <gasps> like, or when you, when you see sin or when you watch TV, people that are just, like, shocked by stuff? Like, I think that Jesus is saying, like, don't be. Like, that's going to happen. You can count on it. Like, evil is going to happen in this world and in our own lives. It is going to happen. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes again in his second letter to Timothy, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Like, let me ask you this question before I continue. Why for a second should we think that following Jesus, whose life was full of suffering and controversy would mean for some reason that ours wouldn't be. Does not Luke 6.40 say that a student will be like his teacher and that's how you'll know that he's the disciple? That when is he trained? When he's like his teacher. Well, who's our teacher? The suffering servant. There will come Difficulty, it says. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self. See if this does not describe our culture. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. So don't be alarmed. Evil is going to be there. 
we won't take time to look, but if you would look at what happens after this passage in 2 Timothy and after the one in 1 Timothy, what Paul's instruction to Timothy is to do in the midst of reality of what's going to happen, in both of these books, is he says, stay true to the word. Like that's, his, that's his command. That's his instruction. Is evil's going to come, but the reality of the way we combat evil is with truth, is with what is real and reality and what is good. And so in the midst of, of evil, stay true to the word. Because that's what people are abandoning. Like, can you trust this book? I believe that's one of our biggest battles. It's because so much of our faith is rooted in the historical record of God's plan of redemption. And so I can't just go up to anybody and say, here's what you need to know. It's in the Bible. Well, they're like, it's just a book. Why, can I, why should I believe that? Like, that's, that's our biggest battle moving forward is the, what does this book mean and why is it true and why can we believe it? Because Paul says that's the way you combat evil is by staying true to God's word. I appreciate this quote a ton by a pastor named K. Edward Copeland. He says, if God is God, and he is, if truth is truth, and it is, then evil is never capable of a perfect plan. Every lie has an end. How much hope is in that? That any source of evil never can prevail. Because in Christ we're more than conquerors. We have the victory. It's absolutely given to us. Let's look at the next verse. Uh, Verse 9. We come to the fourth instruction. Be on your guard. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Here's what Jesus is doing. If you would go to Acts 4, you would see that Jesus is really predicting what these apostles are going to experience in Acts 4. When the council bring them in, and and they basically tell them, quit sharing the gospel with people. And they're like, we can't do that. Like, if you share the gospel with people, we're going to beat you. You know, a lot of times that really works. It works as a teacher. But, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but he's like, he's like, if, if you share the gospel, we're going to beat you. And so they, they go out and what do they do? They share the gospel and they bring it back in and they're like, you know, we told you. We, they beat them and beat them. And then they're like, don't do this. And they go back out and they continue to do it. Okay? He's saying, they're going to bring you in, these councils, and they're going to tell you this and they're going to try to scare you off. Be on your guard. Okay? Um, a lot of times, we have to know and understand that to follow Christ is going to inquire, require suffering. But not only that, but the suffering is going to get worse. Like it is. You can't have evil get worse and the, what happens in trying to combat evil not get worse. Right? Uh, let me explain it this way. Um, this word, be on your guard, uh, here's what it means. A lot of times we think of be on your guard like I can, I can stop it. Like if I'm on my guard, if anything comes at me, I can take it out, right? And I can prevent it from happening. But that's not what the word means at all. Okay? Be on your guard literally means to watch out. Okay? Or to take heed. Okay? Not to prevent it, but to be aware that it's going to happen. Okay, let me illustrate it like this. Um, when you run in a marathon, 
45,000 runners, there are some things that are just unavoidable, okay, um, that you know are bound to happen regardless. And you just have to be on your guard and just be ready for them. Let me give you some examples. Um, like uh, the traffic in the number of people that run is just crazy. Um, you're, you're watching out that you're not clipping somebody's heel because um, there's just so many people around. But not only that, like, as you're running, people all of a sudden decide they want to stop. It's like you're driving down the highway, and someone's like, I think I'm going to stop right here, and they just slam on their brakes. Like, that never goes good, right? Okay, and, that's, and, I, and I had that happen a couple times as I'm running. I had this guy who was uh, kind of right, right in front of me over here, and I saw him, and I'm just running along. He decided he's going to just run off the course and, like, take a break, and he literally just cuts me off, like, right in front of me. And let me just tell you, when you're at, like, mile, like, 15, like, this never goes good, okay? Um, and so he just, he literally just runs right in front of me, and I almost knocked him over, like, not on purpose, like, not, like, you know, jerk, um, but, like, his shoulder pounded in my chest, okay? And as I just, like, hit him and, like, luckily I didn't fall down, and then I kept going. And then there's other times when, like, the fans want to get to the other side. Did you ever do this? Um, and, uh, and so here's what they do is they're, like, the crowd's going along, there, the, the runners are going along this way, and the fans are, like, you know, kind of trying to make, make their way over. Um, and, like, I literally almost knocked a fan over. Um, water stations really never go well uh, because it was, like, 30 degrees and there's water. And, you know, if you know anything about, you know, that, there's freezing. And, um, and so, but, but not only that, these water stations would go for two blocks, okay? Um, and so I literally would have to look ahead and see when they were coming, Okay? Because I had to be prepared because the, the amount of traffic in that location, they were on both sides of the road, which is a good thing. Um, it, was just, it was just crazy. Um, I, I literally had a time when someone was trying to hand a cup to somebody, and I was running right here. And I like, it was everything to not just run into that person handing out water. Okay? And so I literally would have to move to the middle of the course and like dodge my way around these people as I'm, my legs are just dead. Okay? I, just had, I had to watch out for things. Um, that's the wording, that's the analogy that's used uh, in this passage when Jesus says, be on your guard. Okay? I can't prevent somebody from cutting me off. I can't always prevent evil from coming my way, but what I can do is I can be prepared for it. And I can see ahead and I can recognize, hey, this, could, this is going to be coming. How can I be prepared for it to come? Verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Here's the imperative. It's pretty simple. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. The the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the atonement for sin. Proclaim the message of the gospel. Um, Jesus basically is is sending his disciples on a mission, but but he's also sending us on a mission. Okay? And so, as we're going to look at in, in the last verse, is all of us as runners on the course, we, we really had the same type of purpose to, to finish, to cross the finish line. Now, my, 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 that looked a little bit different in my life than it did in the life of the Kenyan who won. Okay? A 447 mile is a little bit different than an 851 mile. Okay? Um, quite a bit. He finished almost twice as fast as me. Okay? So, uh, we both wanted to cross... How we went about crossing the finish line looked quite a bit different, 
Okay? Um, and in, in, in this passage, the imperative here is to not just finish, because there's kind of something very self-centric about just focusing on finishing. Is there not? Like, it's very, it's very me-centered. Okay? But what the instruction here is to Jesus, to the disciples, and to us is to make sure that we not just live life to, on mission to, to finish well in, in our lives, but like, what about the people around us? That's a hard thing. 23 miles, and I'm wanting to pass out. Hey, you need some help? Like, I'm not thinking about that person at all. Like, I'll step on them, and they'll just go off the course, and that's fine with me, okay? Um, and Jesus is saying, don't, don't do that. He's saying, recognize that people around you are dying and on their way to hell, and you have the message of the gospel. Proclaim it. But one of the things that we know from this passage is that the end will not come until all the nations have heard. Look at the next verse, 11. He's going to take this a step further. And and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Here's the sixth imperative. Do not be anxious. Uh, There's so much connection between sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, and being anxious. Is there not? Maybe just in my life, right? Um, But you know, what will they think, and what will they say, and what if they, you know, aren't my friend anymore, and, and maybe some of that's kind of, you know, elementary, but maybe some of it's not, it's kind of right where we are, um, but really what's incredible, what Jesus does here, if you look closely at it, is he says, I'm going to take the pressure off of you, okay, this is an un- unbelievably comforting thing as a, as a communicator of the truth, to stand up here before you and recognize that the pressure is not on me as much as it is on him, which is exactly what's happening here. Is he's saying, when you stand before them, it is not you who speak, but it is my spirit. Now, that doesn't negate, like, studying and understanding what is the gospel and what does it mean for life and studying culture. And it doesn't mean I don't try to grow in my, my ability to communicate. But at the end of the day, if you read Corinthians, says God takes the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He takes the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. He takes the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that all we can boast in is him. And so as a mission of a church to be bold in, in our missional lives, to be bold in our community, as we continue to pray through what that looks like for North Church, like that's the instruction. And don't be anxious. Because the same God that spoke the world into being is the same God that is in us. Like, we miss this as Christians. We miss it. He's in us every day, no matter where you're at, whether you're having problems raising a child, whether you're having problems with a coworker, whether you're having problems on your own, whether you're just discouraged or broken. God isn't, like, just gone. Like, he's in us. He's in us, faithful to complete it. The author and perfecter of our faith is in us. Why are we anxious? Here's what I think it comes down to, and I, 
I love the song that we sang beforehand that it talked about, I believe the Christian life is just a life of surrender. That all it is is it's saying, God, I want to be a conduit of your grace to a lost and dying world. It's just open-handed. God, here I am. I don't have what it takes. In fact, I'm, I'm a pretty much a failure apart from you. But here I am. Somehow use this piece of trash for your name and for your renown. And that's what we proclaim every week as we come here and in our community groups is that we're broken people that are saved by a great God and all he wants is us just to be open vessels for him to use. Look at verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here's the final imperative. Endure. Endure. It's interesting, some of the language here. All this rivalry, all this hatred, all this animosity. And a lot of us would say, I, I don't, I'm not a person that wants to be hated. Probably something weird about someone that like likes being hated by others. Um, we want to be accepted. We want people to like us. We want people to receive us. But notice what Peter says in First Peter four. He says, "Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you." I think sometimes in the midst of suffering, we're like, "What's going on here? Why is this happening?" Like. Be prepared. Look ahead. Be on your guard. This is going to happen. This is a reality of where we are at. 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler, yet if if Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. what it is. It's a matter of like, God, I take my hands off of my life and I entrust my soul to the one who designed it. The faithful creator, in the midst of doing good, God, I'm yours. No matter what comes my way. I appreciate my mom a ton. When, when, I went, when Danielle and I went to India in 2003, so many people in my extended family were like, don't let him go. It's dangerous over there. He's going to die. And you know what my mom did? She went to uh, the family bookstore. And they had this, these necklaces with this little thing on it that said, Joshua 1, 9, Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And she bought them for every single person on our team. She was never like, I don't think you should go. She's like, no, I'm going to entrust the soul of my child to the faithful creator. Remember him. Wear this, everyone on the team. How cool is that? 
How cool is that? 45,000 people started the Chicago Marathon. 33,000 finished. That's a huge difference. 33,000 compared to 45,000 finished the race. It would be stupid for me to begin that run thinking that this was going to be easy. I knew that the last six miles were going to be brutal, which is why I did hill work, which is why I did stair work, which is why I did speed work, which is why I did mile, mile repeats. Like, I knew they were going to be brutal. The longest run I had done up until that point was 20 miles. I had six more that was just uncharted. I have no clue what this is going to be like. I have no clue what my body's going to do, how it's going to respond to it. Okay? But I knew it was going to be hard. But the, the fan support, 1.5 million spectators unbelievable. I had my name written on my race bib, and people were cheering for me like I was the reason why they were there. It was unbelievable. It was awesome. There were two points that Danielle made an effort at 20 miles to see me, and at 25 miles, that she, and God, like, thank the Lord, like, we actually saw each other, um, and the reason why, she's like, I want to be there when it's hardest for you. So that you can look forward to seeing me at 20 miles and getting some bananas. They had them there. And then at 25 miles, when I just have a mile, 1.2 miles to go, just so she could encourage me to push me on. Listen, there's no way you do that type of thing without people there pushing you to finish. 23 miles, I wanted to quit my leg. My right leg was done at 13 miles. My legs were done at 20. And if it wasn't for people around me saying, go, finish. You got this. You can do this. Finish. Uh, one, one quick story, and I'll never forget this. I'm running. We're at mile 24, and I look next to me, and, I, and this lady's like shouting, and it's somebody running, and I look next to me, and there's these two ladies, and this one lady literally looks like she's about ready to die, probably about how I looked, and uh, and I noticed that the, there, so she's running right here, and there's this girl running next to her, and she's almost running sideways, because all she is focused on is getting this other girl across the finish line. And, and I, don't, I don't know what she was saying, but all she, I just know she was like, was giving her motivation, was saying, look ahead, and here's what I want you to focus on, and here's what I want you to do. We're almost there, we're almost there. As if she could care less how she felt. She was focused on this one girl getting her across the finish line. It's like, how incredible is that? But that and I learned so much from that moment. I learned, I learned so much from, from running, period. But it, it makes me think of Hebrews 3. And I'm going to wrap up with this. Look at this passage. It's, it's profound in light of what we've been talking about. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Saying, be careful that some might not finish the race. 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confession firm to the end. So there's something that the Bible teaches, this reality that those who endure to the end are those who are truly His. Okay, it's what John Piper calls eternal security as a community project, which I think is brilliant. Okay, And it's this idea, and it's the reason why we so strongly push living life together and doing life together as a community of believers. Why we talk about band of brothers and 
women's group and community group. It's because we have a, an instruction from the Lord to endure. But how cool is it that we're not just out there by ourselves, but that we're walking alongside one another. And yeah, our races look different, and yeah, our struggles are different. Some people, uh, their, their stomach's hurting, and some people, that, that, you know, there's one guy out there that was blind and had two people tied to him that was, was guiding him. It was unbelievable. Okay? Our races look different in some regards, but the goal is the same. How foolish are we to just come here in this place and worship? Hey, how you doing? Get some food. Agnes are awesome and brought more great food. Uh, but then to walk out there and good luck. We'll see you next week. There's a biblical imperative that we do it together. And here's the point. The precursor to enduring in this passage is what's available to us to endure. So let me connect the beginning and the end. That God doesn't dwell in a temple. The temple is destroyed. That God's dwelling is in the lives of his people. Which makes enduring that much more hopeful. And that much more promising. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we adore you. We stand in this moment recognizing that life is hard. Pain is so real. The pursuit of you is not the pursuit of a life without pain. It's very much there. And it's hard sometimes and we want to quit and we want to give up. But God, how hopeful are we that you're in us and not just in me, but you're in every other child of yours in this room. Pushing me to finish. Pushing me to endure. Pushing me to keep my eyes on the prize. To be on my guard. To not be anxious. To be faithful to you. So God, we stand in this moment confessing that we do not have what it takes. you do. And that's all that matters. And God, the thing that you're faithful to call us to, you're faithful to see it to completion that he who began a good work in us, Philippians 1, 6, will be faithful to carry it out. So God, we just surrender. We say thank you for your great salvation. It's in his name I pray. Amen.